you can make it the most important meal of your day when you eat at one of the eateries that help to define American comfort food. The local restaurants, diners, and greasy spoons that Jane and Michael Stern spend their days seeking out offer more than just a quick bite. When you walk in and you get that family feeling that even people who don't know you seem to want to know you. You cannot feel lonely in one of these places. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. The Stearns are back on today's Travel with Rick Steves with more suggestions for how to plan for good home cooking on your next road trip, the kind that comes with a side order of TLC. And to help plan your next trip to Europe, the owner of a tourist information service at the Munich train station helps us understand the advantages of using a rail pass in Europe. I think it's one of the most beautiful routes in all of Europe. We'll also open up the phones to hear where listeners like you are traveling. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A good meal ought to include more than just food on a plate. Coming up in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves, Jane and Michael Stern are back to share their latest tips for finding American comfort food that's a good value, complete with an atmosphere that'll make you feel right at home, even on a cross-country road trip. And when I travel in Europe for more than two decades now, I've been meeting up with Alan Wissenberg at his tourist information booth in the Munich train station. If anyone can figure out the complexities of rail travel in Europe, he can. He's here to help us suss out when the continent's passenger rail options are still a better deal than booking a seat on one of those discount airlines so popular in Europe these days. Alan, thanks for being here. Rick, it's nice to be here. Alan, I understand that it's interesting to me, Deutsches Bundesbahn, that's the name of the uh, national train system in, in Germany, right? And they actually hire you to help American travelers not be confused. Uh, tell us about that sort of relationship. Why do they give you money to have your office in Munich? You know, over the last quarter of a century, I've dealt with many of the travelers who speak lots of English or some English, but they speak no German. And our staff is best at listening, finding out quickly what people need, either because they have a rail pass already or need a ticket, and we can make suggestions that save the railroad time. So if you've got American travelers bumbling around the train station, it's in Deutsche Bundesbahn's interest to have a place that has an English sign that says, come here for your help, and then you can straighten them out. What are the major points of confusion, you would say, these days for Americans traveling by train, both in Germany and just in general? When we compare planes and trains, a train can leave Munich, go all the way to Vienna or to Budapest, and you're in the same car, but it's administered by three different railroads. So one ticket can do things that a plane doesn't do. I can sell a ticket from Munich to Budapest, and you can get off that train in Salzburg on your way to Budapest. You can get off in Vienna on your way to Budapest. You can spend up to a month traveling. Okay, so when you buy a normal ticket, if, if if I buy just a normal ticket from Munich to Amsterdam... I could stop along the way for up to a month. Correct, because it's an international thing. ticket. That's a beautiful We thing. don't do that with planes. Trains are getting faster and faster. I, to me, there must be like an internal Marshall Plan in Europe where they're investing in their trains. I was just going to visit you in your office in Munich a couple of years ago, and I was just kind of taking pictures of trains coming in, and I was literally taking pictures of little birds squished under the windshields of trains as they came into the station. And it just occurred to me you would never see a bird squished under the windshield of a train here in the United States. Comment a little bit about how Europe is so passionate about fast travel on rail. Well, you know, it might be a little different from region to region, but if you look at the airspace of Europe, by giving high-speed train connections, you're reducing the number of planes that go between portions of Europe, be it Lyon to Paris or from Munich to Berlin. Ah, so that's part of the that's uh, a factor. rationale. That's because, a factor. And I know my European friends who are more green and interested in environmental issues, they will not take a plane when they can take a train because they think it's more green to go by train than air. High-speed lines are a tremendous investment initially. No one questions that it's expensive. But the long-term results of being able to go daytime, Munich to Berlin, in less than four and a half hours means that a lot of people who would otherwise go to an airport, fly, land at another airport, and then have to come into the city will consider taking trains. And that's a business decision, not just an environmental decision. So it's good for their time, it's economic, and it's, it's a plus environmentally. When you think yeah. of the intensity of Europe, it's just very dense, and there's so many people. Yeah. Uh, Germany is the size of Montana with one-third of our population. Yeah. You've got a lot of congestion up in the skies. If you can keep a little bit on the rails, that's actually a bonus for Europe. 
anything that reduces the number of cars on the road on already very well-used autobahns right. or reduces the number of flyers is helpful. What are the trends in night trains? When I was a kid traveling through Europe, I would sleep on trains everywhere. Now they're getting so fast, there's almost not as many night trains available because an eight-hour trip in the old days now takes three hours. A few routes certainly have disappeared over time, but you still have services from Paris to Madrid, mm-hmm. Paris to Barcelona, from Munich to a city like Berlin or Rome. Mm-hmm. Very good night service where you can go to bed about 9 o'clock and arrive the next morning, 7 or 8 in the morning. Also, when I was a younger traveler, you had the one basic year rail pass, all 20 countries or whatever, and you get it for three weeks or one month or two months, and it's just no questions. You flash the pass, you get on the train, you go. Now, the train passes have become a little more confusing, a little less consistent, and burdened with what I think is greedy national lines that require reservations. How do you assess the trends in rail passes, and, and what's the current situation for people that are thinking about, quote, your rail travel? Okay. I agree with you that even 20 years ago, the number of rail pass options was low and the flexibility they offered made it easier to make a recommendation and a quick decision. Now it takes a little longer. And if uh, 20 years ago we said 10% didn't need a rail pass, maybe it's 20, 25% now. But many still benefit from the rail pass, a specific pass. So you need to assess how much traveling you're going to do and then look at the point-to-point costs and look at the year rail Perhaps a little more advice before you make the initial purchase so that you feel good about it. When you're buying point-to-point tickets in Europe, you've got a choice to make first or second class. What I've been telling people is, you know, it costs 50% more per kilometer to go first class compared to second class. And most trains have first and second class cars on them, each going precisely the same speed. What's the better value, first class or second class? If you talk about a standard ticket price, you have first class providing at a slightly higher price, three across in seating instead of four. First class usually has fewer children present, and you have usually the opportunity for a larger view outside. Oh, a view too. And I noticed, I I would say you've got a little more rambunctious clientele down in second class. You're more likely to have soldiers, nuns, families, you know, bikers, all that sort of thing. First class, you know, elegant people who think it's worth spending 50% more not to have to sit with the A bunch of backpackers. One or two people actually through an advanced ticket purchase pay very little additional to travel in first class. But for standard prices, yes, they pay more. Now, Europe is doing very good stuff with having uh, sensitivity to the consumer when it comes to rail travel. I noticed there are quiet cars. You can look at outside the door of the car before you get on and it'll have a cell phone with an X over it, meaning you don't use your cell phone in this car. Business class cars for quiet workers and so on. I think the biggest distinction between today and 20 years ago is virtually all train travel is smoke-free compartments. Huge difference. Yeah. yeah. Now, you've got some very scenic trains that are designed for sightseers through the Alps. Mm-hmm. What is the latest on those? Several of them are still covered by the rail passes that many people purchase. And when these are domed roofs? Domed roofs and or they are large windows. They're still referred to as panoramic cars without necessarily having a glass window at and the you- top. You can even sit up in the front and watch the scenery coming at you. A few seats, and as you and I both know, wow. getting a seat in June and July is a challenge. Okay. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Alan Wissenberg. And Alan runs a, a travel information service for American travelers with offices in the Munich and the Berlin train stations. Alan's website is euraid.com. E-U-R-A-I-D-E dot com. Alan Last time I visited you, you told me some interesting stories about how people are attempting to cheat the European rail system by having fake Eurail passes. What are the most common ways people try to cheat with their Eurail passes? I think one of the dramatic changes has been that occasionally someone has taken the risk of buying from a non-authorized distributor. They assume that the money they give is adequate and learn only on the train that they have made a big mistake. The pass was not correctly issued. It was actually a forgery. And technically, you're supposed to have your passport with you when you use the train pass to prove where you are. Most rail passes require a cover and your passport, yeah. In fact, that's the big news now is you have to keep the cover with it. I didn't. Yes. I used to throw away the cover, but now you can get in trouble well, for that. Well, we got you out of jail the last <laughs> time, Rick. <laughs> One of the beautiful things about traveling in Germany by train is I feel like you don't even need to look at the schedules hardly. Everything is so synchronized. There's so many departures. Yeah. I remember once I went through Europe and I felt like Tarzan swinging from vine to vine. 
without any pause at all. I would get off at the one station, and I'd walk across the platform, and there's another train ready to go to connect on into the next big city. And as train travel has increased in popularity, the one thing, it doesn't happen often, I'm sure to you, but can be that you need a reservation to get a guaranteed seat, be it first class or second class, because lots of people are doing the same thing. So that's the major uh, challenge for us. And what I find is there are very good quick information services at a stand that's stationed right there where all the people people are in the train station. And you just pop in there, you tell them your plans, and you ask, do I need a reservation? It's helpful to confirm. Sometimes there's a change in plans. Even the timetable that's produced for Mm -hmm. your rail pass users has a standard time. It can change through construction. So a smart traveler might just confirm things with the quick information desk at train stations throughout Europe. Wherever possible and time allows, I'd recommend it. Alan, let's say you're on a train. You're just traveling around Europe. Can you tell where that train's from and where it started? You know, usually the departure board is talking about where it's going to. And where it started from isn't always mentioned. A lot of people getting on a train are surprised when it has two destinations. They actually boarded a train that splits. Okay, so when you step on a train, remember, all those cars aren't going where you think they're going. You don't so have to go, You no. could conceivably be on a train that's going to Amsterdam, and you could be, it could be crowded. You could walk along and end up finding an empty car and sit down and doze off and wake up in Dusseldorf with no Amsterdam in sight. It happens. People boarding a train with the intent of going to Cologne, but the train leaving Berlin, part of it went to Cologne. The other part never went. Every train has a name on the car, in the car, and outside the car, where it's going. Every train should be giving you a car number, Mm -hmm. and it should have a destination at the door as you board. And inside as well. Inside depends on the service, how digitalized it is. Okay. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been getting up to date on European rail travel with Alan Vissenberg. Alan, recount for us just if you're traveling as a vacationer in Europe, one gorgeous moment for anybody who loves just to ride the train. Boy, I hope they'll take the run from Luzern via Interlaken and Spitz and Zeissimen over to Montreux. Right across the Swiss Alps? Yeah. What would you see? Well, you're leaving an area of beauty, majestic beauty. It's called the Golden Pass. You're heading over towards Lake Geneva. I think it's one of the most beautiful routes in all of Europe. Big domed windows, larger windows? They exist. Sometimes it's a direct through car from Interlaken all the way to Montreux. Sometimes you have to change once or twice along the way. And rolling gracefully through little villages, as well as over dramatic mountain passes and and under massive mountains. And then when you're done with that, you can hop on the train and go 300 kilometers an hour back to Paris. If you want. (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And we've been talking rail in Europe with Alan Vissenberg. Thanks, Alan. Glad to be here. Alan Vissenberg's Your Aid Agency is a walk-up information booth at the Munich and Berlin train stations. They also post rail planning tips at uraid.de. That's U-R-A-I-D-E dot D-E. Next, Jane and Michael Stern travel the USA in search of the comfort foods worth writing a book about. Their latest road food tips are next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Don't you just love walking into a restaurant in a town you've never been to and finding it's a place that feels like home away from home? Or at least like Grandma's house. Great smells are coming from the kitchen. 
People at the tables look like they've known each other all their lives, and the menu features comforting food that you might have forgotten about since you were a little kid. And even though you're a stranger, you feel quickly like you belong. But how do you find these great places if you're just passing through town? Well, the two best people I know of for finding comfort food and homey surroundings in the back roads of America are with us again on Travel with Rick Steves. Jane and Michael Stern publish a guide to 800 places for good eats all across the lower 48. Their book's called Road Food, and their roadfood.com website includes an interactive map and a place where you can add your own recommendations to their list. Jane and Michael, thanks for being with us. Hi, Rick. Hi, Rick. What's new with Road Food? You know, I, I just have to say, before we even tell you what's new with Road Food, I love the way you introduced the idea of walking into a restaurant, the smells, the sights, the ambiance, the, the feeling you get of the people, because... You know, a lot of restaurant crit or a lot of food critics really focus entirely on the food. You know, yeah. is this, you know, how is this steak? Is it done right? Is it this, that, and the other mm-hmm. thing? And that's all obviously important. But for us especially, road food is defined by the taste of the food, but also just by the whole feel of the place. Is it a local place? Is this the kind of restaurant where the locals come at 5.30 in the morning, right. sit around and drink <laughs> coffee at what they call the Liars Club table yeah. and, you know, catch up with each other? I mean, it's... That, to me, makes a restaurant really delicious, even if the food isn't the best I ever ate. That's one thing nice about, in England now, the pubs have become gastropubs, and pubs specialize in conviviality more than anything else. And for for generations, people put up with horrible food because the conviviality was so good. And it was, and, but it's not horrible anymore. So you got the same great pub conviviality, and you got the great quality food because you have a new passion, a more affluent society, a society that understands the value of good eating. Do we find that in the United States? Well, when Michael and I started doing road food, which was 1973, is that when we, we set off? First of all, we had no idea what was out there in the United States. I mean, we we had never traveled. We didn't know what we were looking for. And it was scary and it felt lonely to be two people against the entire United States. And in those days, our goal, I mean, if this doesn't sound insane, I don't know what does. Our goal was to review every single restaurant in America. Okay. Wow. So we'd knock that down a little bit or we would still have never left Connecticut. What appealed to us in these regional local restaurants, and our beat has always been small town restaurants. We don't do chains. We don't do the big name restaurants. We don't do Escoffier or the five-star restaurants. When you walk in and you get that family feeling that even people who don't know you seem to want to know you. Yeah. You're kind of wrapped in this this warmth that that's quite wonderful. That makes the coffee taste better, you know. It's just nice. It does make the and it, you know, it's, many of these restaurants are especially wonderful in the morning because it is where people come to sort of catch yeah. up and get the day started. But we found out there's a whole style of restaurant, primarily in the South, um, that talk about convivial and talk about friendly and talk about family. What they call round table dining. Yeah. A good example of this is the Dinner Bell in Macomb, Mississippi. Round table dining is there are big tables in the dining room. They're round tables. They seat maybe 10 people. And in the center of the table is a big Lazy Susan. And on that Lazy Susan are set big family-style bowls of fried chicken, mashed potatoes, squash casserole, biscuits, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you want something off that Lazy Susan, you spin it, you grab what you want, put your dish back. And that kind of dining, you know, if you're an individual diner or just a couple of diners, it's impossible to dine that way and not start a conversation with the other people. A boarding house reach is perfectly appropriate. And you start talking about the food, and that takes you wherever the conversation goes. That You cannot feel lonely in one of these places. The boarding house reach. That's a great phrase. The strangest family feeling I ever had in a restaurant was in Tuba City, Arizona, which is the Navajo Reservation. And Michael and I went to a cafe there. Literally nobody spoke English. They were speaking Navajo, which... It sounds like Russian backwards is right. one of the the most difficult languages to learn or understand. And somebody came around selling raffle tickets. And, you know, because we didn't want to seem cheap, we bought a raffle ticket and we had no idea what the raffle was for. We went back for breakfast the next day and the owners 
were, were hugging us and embracing us and a little bit of English they spoke. They said, you won the grand prize. <laughs> and we said, what is it? It was a huge, fully grown sheep that, <laughs> <laughs> that they had in the back of a pickup truck. And Congratulations. Our, yeah. Exactly. And what were you driving? <laughs> <laughs> we were driving, I think we were driving a VW Rabbit at the time. Stick your sheep in the back. So we kind of redonated the sheep, but it was a very nice gesture. But there you go. That's that dimension of fun and eating and good eating that is tied in more with conviviality and being part of that uh, slice of culture. You know, in, in Germany, they have a wonderful tradition called a Stammtisch. What is that? A Stammtisch has a little flag at the table, and it says the name of the club, or the. it just says Stammtisch, and that's where the locals always sit together. And wow. the people who come, they just sit down, and they've always got that conviviality and that round-table dining at a Stammtisch. Oh, how nice. I've not encountered that in the United States, but the round-table dining sounds like a, a great idea. Talk a little bit more. Where would you find this, uh, where you sit down at, at a sort of a makeshift family table? Well, you know, pretty much every small-town cafe that is in road food has, if not a revolving table, has a specific table, big table, in the middle of the restaurant hmm. where all the locals come for breakfast and coffee. If you're bold, you can, you can join them? Well, kind we of. We have been invited to join them on occasion. Yeah, because the Stammtisch is a way to keep the tourists away, to be honest. <laughs> oh, you know? well, our people are a lot a lot friendlier. Um, That's good. You want to know how, how we were asked to join once? Back in the 1980s, before everyone used digital cameras, Michael's <laughs> father ran a camera store. So even though we were dirt poor, we still had Hasselblads and Roloflexes and lights and mm. tripods. We'd go into these little town cafes, and Michael would start setting up lights like he was Cecil DeMille to photograph his cheese sandwich or his <laughs> his uh, apple pie. And the locals would look at him and, and they'd sort of turn to me and they'd say, what's he doing? And I, it was too hard to explain the concept oh. of road food. Because this was long before the internet. Right. Yeah. So I said he just was released from a mental hospital <laughs> and he's, he's harmless, but he loves to take pictures of food. So the locals would invite us over and let Michael take pictures of all their breakfasts, which I thought was quite generous. What a great idea to break the ice and get to, to, to <laughs> talk with other people. Act like a lunatic. A lunatic. <laughs> the trouble is that that technique wouldn't work today because everyone takes pictures of their food. <laughs> Jane and Michael Stern could be called cultural anthropologists of real American cuisine. They're bringing us more of their tips right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Tips for finding great food on the back roads and in county seats of America. Their books include their classic guide to eateries called Road Food, as well as The Lexicon of Real American Food and 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Their website is roadfood.com, and that includes road trip itineraries they recommend for a car trip fueled on the best road food you can find in different regions of the United States. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sid is calling in from Atlanta. Sid, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is a thrill. Uh, the Stearns have been celebrities uh, in this great search we have for authentic food on the highways and byways. So I'm really pleased to be able to ask a question or two. What is it that really makes for authentic road food? Is it the personality behind the counter? Is it the homegrown specialty? Or is it just that quick, cheap, and tasty combination of things? I think it's like, I mean, this sounds corny, but it's sort of like falling in love. I mean, you can go on a very nice date and have a good time and blah, 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 blah. But when all of a sudden, you know, Prince Charming is before your eyes, <laughs> it's like the music rises and it's like, ah, you know, the angels sing. And when Michael and I go to, you know, the superlative best road food restaurants like the the Herring Place in... Um, oh, in North Carolina, right, yes. Or the Ploy Festival in Maine, which are foods we never even heard about. 
and it's all local and it's completely original and untainted and it's never been on the food network and the <laughs> the chef isn't a celebrity i mean the angels sing but you know in some ways i think um there is a similarity with the celebrity chef restaurants i think one of the common denominators of all the restaurants that we think are really quintessential road food is there's a passion there. People mm-hmm. really love yeah. what they're doing, either because it's their tradition or they think it tastes good or it's part of their community, whether this is a barbecue or a fish fry or an oyster roast or a bakery. I mean, there's there's a sense behind this restaurant that people really care about it. And that, to me, is like the key to great road food. Yeah, it's almost an, like obsession, a magnificent obsession. Is that related to somebody having worked there for a long, long time? Uh, it, it seems like a lot of your favorite places have characters that have been dishing out this or that for 20 years. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, this is, I'm sure you have your, your own little secret tricks, you know, up your sleeve when you travel. <laughs> when we go to a restaurant and I see the help wanted sign on the window <laughs> or waitress wanted, we usually turn around and leave. Yeah. We found the best places like um, Eccles beef on Weck in Buffalo, they have their their staff for 40 years. Mary Max in Atlanta used to have their staff for 40 years. I mean, the great road food restaurants not only made their patrons feel like family, but their staff was family. And the staff is a team also. A team, and they took what they're doing very seriously. I love that concept. It's so true in my work in Europe to find a place where you know these guys are they're there for their career. They, they, they're not getting yep. rich, but they really believe in what they're doing. They work together with a with a sort of a silent communication that is just fascinating, and, and they just keep their people coming back. And also, a lot of, of our road food restaurants are now third and fourth generation run by, by families. There was a period in the 1980s when Nouvelle Cuisine came in and Cuisinarts were the thing. And the sons and daughters of the restaurateurs ran away from the restaurants, went to food school, made a bollocked up mess out of the regional food, came back and kind of realized, uh oh, you know, mm. I did it wrong. Let me see what the way dad did it. <laughs> and now they're upholding the tradition. They're going back to the basics of it. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, Jane and Michael, I just did a road trip myself from Seattle to Tallahassee, and I took your book along. And whenever I could, wow. I'd look up some of your places. And uh, they were always worth the, the destination when you wrote highly about some place to, to find it. But what I found in the southeast of the United States, in areas that are having economic problems, was sort of a rising tide of just, frankly, sad chain restaurants on a corner. You'd come to a distant corner. There's no commerce anywhere. You'd have a little commerce around a military base and a, and a little commerce along the freeway. And you come to an intersection and you got four corners and you got four chain restaurants. Absolutely. And, and you feel like this whole society is growing up on, on this uninspired food. Is that something that you notice in poor parts of the country? Well, we've sort of been noticing it since 1973 when we started. (laughs) And, you know, being basic pessimists, which we both are, I think we felt this is the end of the world as we know (laughs) it, which is now going into its fourth decade. So, yeah. It is an issue. There's no question. We've seen a lot of really glorious mom and pop restaurants go out of business. Just because there isn't another generation to take over. And, and it's hard to compete with the Burger King across Exactly. The I mean, Applebee's moved next door or whatever, and you can't compete with it. So, I mean, there's no question that is a big problem. On the other hand, I think one of the things that's happened over the last maybe 15 or 20 or even 30 years is that we Americans have come to really appreciate mm-hmm. our regional food. And a lot of, say, barbecues or fish fries that might have just been kind of gone out of business People who run them realize that they're doing something significant, of cultural significance. And I think in that sense, you know, because these restaurants aren't just places to eat. I mean, they're part of the community. They're where people gather. They're part of tradition. It's the one place you can count on every morning. I mean, because of that, a lot of them, I think, do stay in business despite the onslaught of the chains. Sid, what's Sid's take on that? Because, Sid, I was just in Atlanta, and... I've never seen a city with less uh, concern for its heritage. You have like three old buildings in the town, <laughs> right? But you've got restaurants that people have been going to all their life that they're passionate about. What do you see the trend in Atlanta? Well, um, I was taking a walk this morning thinking about some of my old haunts that are not here anymore, and I, I was sad when I thought about those. 
We are not known for our great historic preservation here, and that's a very significant and sad thing. But we've got some wonderful new things coming on board, like on Beaufort Highway, just an incredible number of ethnic, wide-ranging ethnic restaurants that is sort of an untapped international scene in Atlanta. So we've got some new frontiers uh, opening up, but we, we still do miss the Cowan sandwich shop that mm. sold golden nugget chicken sandwiches <laughs> down by the old uh, railroad station, <laughs> things like that. But um, what, one of my other questions to the Stearns would be, what did they see as the new frontiers, if there are any, in road food? I mean, are there going to be bus stations and truck stops? <laughs> I <and> hope not. <laughs> well, food trucks, obviously, I mean, mm. is, is giant in some parts of the country where, yeah. where ordinances allow it. I mean, yeah. food trucks are huge. When we started, it was pretty rare to find a food truck in an urban area. Now there are some cities like, say, Portland, Oregon, where every time you turn around, there's a corner with four food trucks on it. But I think Sid really said the word du jour, which is ethnic, Mm. because Michael and I have gone fairly recently to South Tucson, or I'm just trying to think, in Charleston, the area where it's it's all soul food restaurants. Or the Gullah cuisine. the, The Gullah cuisine, as one is better than the other. None of these places are famous and none of them are known, but they are pure and they are competitive with each other and they're absolutely delicious. And I think parallel to sort of the great rise in ethnic food being part of the community is a, is a great rise in really hot, spicy food. I mean, one of the things we've noticed over the years is fried chicken. Well, generally, most of us think of fried chicken as comfort food. In Nashville, there's a whole trend towards what they call hot fried chicken. And when I say hot, I mean ferociously hot. You can get like hot, you get mild, medium, hot, and extra hot. And even the hot is almost too hot for us and to it's, taste. Well, <laughs> it's, it's almost Chinese in that the chicken is fried like regular southern fried chicken. And then it's dipped in a boiling pot of Tabasco and other hot sauces and pulled out very quickly. So there's a, a like almost a candy apple crust on of, heat. The, of heat of heat on the chicken. <laughs> Sid, thanks for Fabulous. your call. Thank you. Good luck. You bet. Bye, Sid. Bye bye. Jane and Michael. Um, speaking of hot, what brand of antacid do you carry in your back pocket? <laughs> I'm a Nexium girl. I've been blessed with a stomach made of cast iron. I can eat anything and feel fine. Nice. Jane and Michael Stern, uh, you guys are busy as ever, and to learn what's going on, and you can go to roadfood.com and get up to date on the best places for traditional American food and to celebrate the diversity of our beautiful country. Uh, Jane and Michael, thanks and, and uh, happy eating. Take care, Rick. Thank you, Rick. All that meat and no potatoes just ain't right like green tomatoes. Yes, I'm screaming. I'm really screaming. All that meat and no potatoes. Next, listeners share how their travels have made a difference in their lives. And they might just have a few ideas to help inspire your next trip overseas. 877-333-7425. That's our phone number. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. From time to time, listeners will email us here at radio at ricksteves.com to tell us about a great adventure or discovery they had on their latest trip. Right now, let's check in with some of them at 877-333-7425 to hear what surprises and fun Europe had to offer them and maybe see what we can learn for our next trip. Deb's on the phone in Jane, New York. Deb, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, do you have some uh, experience from a recent trip that you can share with our listeners? I do. Uh, My husband and I were traveling in France, and uh, for the first time ever on a trip to Europe, we took our two dogs with us. They're small dogs. They fit right in the cabin with us. And we found as we walked around the streets of Paris and beyond, people would just walk up to us unintroduced and just 
pet our dogs and say how wonderful they were. Wow. I've never met anybody who took their dogs from home to your... Because a lot of people love their dogs. They're going on vacation and they're thinking of it. And to be honest, I've never seriously given it much thought. But it sounds like a great sort of icebreaker. I mean, people with little kids have the same kind of joy. But uh, it's a little, a little different to take your dogs. First of all, how do you get a dog on a flight? What are the considerations that way? Well, if you're going to France, it's very easy. It's just making sure they have their shots. You go to your vet, and he fills out the forms, and you bring them with you. Other countries, you need what's now called the International Pet Scheme, Pet Travel Scheme, or Pet Passport. But for France, it couldn't have been easier. And then, do you pay extra for the dog, or do you carry it onto the airplane? Do you check it downstairs, put it in the overhead locker? Yeah, we actually put our two dogs, their Chihuahua mixes, and they fit under the seat in front of us on the plane. We do pay uh, for their tickets as well as ours. So what would it cost roughly to take a, a dog to Europe from the United States? Well, it varies. There are airlines who will do it for about 100 125 uh, We flew Open Skies, which is a British Air subsidiary. It was a little bit more. more so like, uh, 100 or $200, 200. and you can take your dog to Europe and back. And then yeah. the red tape is you just go to the vet and they know the hoops to go through and uh, you get your shots or whatever so you can... Like, you know, in the old days, travelers had to travel with the International Certificate of Vaccination. Apparently, dogs need to have that today. Exactly. And make sure that your vet is a USDA-certified vet. Okay. Now, when it comes to taking dogs into hotels around Europe, do you have to let them know you've got a dog when you make the reservation? Well, we stayed mostly in apartments, but every place we stayed was pet-friendly, and we found that when we were looking for rentals and hotels... More places accepted dogs than didn't. Was there some kind of a damage deposit or something like this? Uh, only once. Only okay. for one of the five places where we stayed. When you wanted to go to a nice restaurant, did the restaurants let dogs in? Yes, they did. Uh, we had both dogs in restaurants with us, although our one dog seems to like to bite waiters, so she stayed in her little bag. But the other guy who behaves himself got to sit on the chair right next to him. Ah, because I've got some beautiful photographs of cute little dogs in restaurants from Europeans, but I don't think any of them were tourists. I would imagine it's really easy to sit outside in a restaurant with your dog, but you found that you could take the dogs inside as well. Absolutely. Because I don't think that's the case in the United States. We're more worried about stray hairs and so on, right? Yeah, although most people have dogs under their dining room tables when they're eating dinner if they're dog owners, so it doesn't seem to be much of a stretch to have them in the restaurant. I but hear you. I know, it just really bugs me in the United States. You can't take kids or dogs into our little local Oktoberfest here. And uh, you go to Germany oh. and they go, what's with this? You got kids, you got dogs, everybody's together. That's family values. Hey, sure, did, it's a family affair. Did your dogs get to meet the locals, other dogs? They did. Uh, the one chihuahua is a little nippy, so we just kept her on a tight leash or kept her in the bag. The other one, he, uh, he even got to be good friends with a little female dog down at the uh, Place Monge Market in Paris. So we saw her three times that week, and they were good buddies. Do they stay in touch? Not so far. We're still working on his iPad skills. <laughs> but did you meet the owners of your dog's girlfriend? Um, actually, she was the um, market dog. I think she belonged to one of the organic greengrocers there at the market. You know, you could write a whole journal about experiences with your dog in Paris or something. Yeah, well, we're planning on going for 11 weeks to France and uh, hope to get a blog up. Great idea. And uh, is there any other tips you'd like to give for people who really didn't seriously consider taking their dog deer, but it's actually something you'd say to consider? It is a fantastic way to meet people who you otherwise, locals, who you otherwise wouldn't meet. So um, I would say do bring them. Just check with your vet to make sure uh, you've dotted all your I's and crossed your T's. But it really enriched our trip. What was the biggest frustration or limiting factor because you had a dog with you? Museums. I was going to ask you about that. Um, Tough to bring them into museums, although we did take them into a few churches. Okay. I've been in little village churches in the Cotswolds in England where shepherds actually brought their dogs to church with them, and over the generations you could see where the leashes of the dogs were wearing down the wood, and it's just a a charming bit of history that that reminds us that some churches are are dog-friendly and others aren't. Definitely my kind of church. All right. Deb, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, fascinating to think about dogs in Europe. Thank you. Say hi to your dogs for me. Will do. Earl's on the phone in Dowling Park, Florida. Earl. Hi, Rick. What's up? Well, my wife and I have gone to Europe many times, and until four years ago, we'd never been to Poland. It's hard to get to from Florida, but 
we became so pleased and so happy to visit there that we've gone four times now in four years. And Warsaw is our favorite town, uh, although we've been to some of the others. We just are really excited about it. We're excited about what the country is doing, you know, following the horrible history that they've had early in the last century. You know, Earl, it is very interesting when you think about going to Poland, because most people go to a cute place in Poland, like Krakow, and Correct. you're you're going to the the thunderous big city, Warsaw. No, I know. Nothing wrong with Krakow. We like that. Right. And I like Gdansk even better than Krakow for all of the scenery. Amazing but, but you like the energy of Warsaw. But Warsaw, where we stay, we have an apartment within a one-mile radius of that apartment, which is in Old Town. It's just unreal what we can see. In other words, uh, we walk a mile one way and we see the palace, we see the fountains, we walk another way. You know, there's just so much there. You know, Earl, when I'm in Warsaw, what really I marvel at is how in 1945 there was literally not two bricks on top of each other. It was just completely flattened. No, I know. That's the part that's unreal to me. But we we sense that the young people in Poland are being very well educated and they are not letting them forget the history. That's great. Uh, it is great. Now, when you, when you think about the old town of Warsaw, describe how it's been rebuilt, because I understand they were painstaking in rebuilding it just the way it was before the war. That's correct. Uh, we're in old town, but our street isn't necessarily rebuilt with that care. But one block away, there is the large square, and that is the area where each building has been designed and built to duplicate what existed before the war. Even with its higgly-piggly corners and its lack of right angles and this sort of yep. thing? Yep, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said you and your wife can just walk, and within a mile, so many attractions. What are, some, so of the, what are yeah. some of the great moments you've had in, in Warsaw? What's an example of, of something that would charm us in Warsaw? Well, I, <laughs> it, it's awfully nice when you can make friends in the country you're visiting. And we have made two great friends in Warsaw, and of course that just makes the trip even richer mm-hmm. when you can spend time with them. And I find that in, in a city like Warsaw that doesn't have a lot of tourists and uh, in a country that uh, people have their, their immediate challenges economically and so on, that they're just really open to meeting uh, visitors that come in from far away. They are, and there aren't many Americans. And then, of course, you've got the, the Warsaw Ghetto and all these very dramatic sights from the Holocaust and, yes. and the horrors that the Polish people went through in World War II. Yes, and this year our friend took us to Chopin's hometown. They idolized Chopin in Warsaw, and they have uh, piano concerts every Sunday. They have piano concerts outdoors in the park there, don't they? That's correct, in oh, the Vinky have Park. Uh-huh. Beautiful grand, that big black grand piano under the statue of, of uh, Chopin <laughs> to keep the heritage of Poland alive. <laughs> All right. Well, Earl, I think you've inspired some people to think about Warsaw. Thanks for your call. hope so. Okay, thank you. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. We're checking in with listeners now at 877-333-7425 with highlights from their latest travels. Share your own travel adventures with us on our radio message board. It's behind the radio tab at ricksteves.com. And Patrick's on the phone in Indian Town, Florida. Patrick, where have you been lately that you'd like to share? Well, for years on, we lived in North Africa. We used to go to Europe every summer, and we would take our car across the Mediterranean and drive around. And I remember for our family, the best vacation we ever had was in Barcelona. Why so? Well, we were able to rent an apartment from a friend of ours that was right downtown in the Bari Gothic. For our listeners, the Bari Gothic is the Gothic Quarter in the dark old center of town around the cathedral. Yeah, and it was a very nice apartment, although it was kind of old. We had to walk up five stories every day, but just walking around. My brother flew down from Belgium. He was living there at the time. And my wife's sister came over from Canada. Hmm. And so we had like, I think there were five of us in the apartment. You have a pad where all your friends can fly in and rendezvous. Oh, yeah, that was great. And it was great having an apartment because you could go into the market and buy things and cook. Everybody goes to the La Boqueria. Did you go over to St. Catherine's Market? Uh, No, we 
we did. Did you go to we the La Bocaria? Yeah, the Bocaria is the most you know vibrant and everything like that, but it's getting quite touristy, and I would recommend when people are in Barcelona to realize that there's different neighborhood markets that they might enjoy to complement the La Bocaria experience. One thing I enjoyed in Barcelona was simply walking those narrow streets with towering old buildings all around and, and just browsing through the, the shops. Every shop has so much character and, and cute little eateries and so on. Oh, yeah, we walked so much. I always remember that's the only vacation I can remember where I would get near the end. I would get home at night, and my feet were literally bleeding. Yeah, well, there's a lot to see, and what you might want to do next time is rent a bike, because I found Barcelona's great for biking along the harborfront. Oh, yeah, that would that would be good. When you're staying there, Patrick, what do you do for evening entertainment, uh, concerts and so on? Well, we went to a classical guitar concert. It was in a Gothic church downtown, Oh, very old Somebody was just passing out the flyers for it, and we went, and it was really great. I think the fact that it was in the old church made it even better. There's something evocative about hearing classical music in in classical venues like that. Yeah. Sounds like a great idea. Barcelona is a a happening city. Now that uh, the Catalonians can wave their flag more freely, they're really on a roll there culturally, and it's a great opportunity for travelers, to, especially to settle in in an apartment like you did. Oh, yeah. No, it was great. I wish we could do it again. We Hopefully we will. All right. Well, Patrick from Florida, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, Rick. Good okay. Night. Take care. And Barbara's on the line in Mill Valley, California. Barbara, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? Doing good. Got some travel stories for us? Um, I just wanted to tell people about this amazing event that I went to in Turin, Italy, in Torino, called Salone del Gusto which is the slow food movement. Salone del Gusto. Salone del Gusto. So that is the conference for the slow food people? It is, yes. It's um, every other year in Torino. It happens in Turin or Torino every other year. In October. What was that like? It was amazing. You walk into this enormous convention hall, and there's just booth after booth after booth. Wow. um, Can anybody go? Yeah, uh, 2012 was the first year that they opened it all to the public. Oh, what an experience. It was incredible. So walk um, us down the aisles. Now, these are all the people who are passionate about cheese, salami, wine, jams, yes. everything that's made local, that's made traditional, that's made with organic, without chemicals and so on. That's correct, yes. And it was organized so you could really literally walk from the heel of the boot of Italy all the way to the Alps, you know, through every state, every locality, you know, experiencing special foods. Um, I had pear jam from the last 200 trees in uh, Verona, a salami that you spread on on bread, never heard of that. There are people there demonstrating, you know, how to make pizza or whatever. It was just incredible, and lots and lots of wine. People are so passionate about that in Italy. They are, and Torino... That area of Italy, the Piedmont area, is where the slow food movement started. So they're particularly passionate about it in that area. So as you're traveling around Italy, you can restaurants that are passionate about this are also proud to be part of this group, and they'll put in their window some indication that they are a slow food restaurant. They will. They will. And they'll identify food on the menu that is slow food presidia, which is food that's being brought back. Barbara, why do you think that matters? Why are they so excited about it? Well, if you tasted it, you would know. <laughs> <laughs> that was the leading question. It's so tasty. Yes, it is, and, and unique. There are differences that you can't imagine until you've tasted them. And these are local farmers. These are you know young people, older people, that are doing this themselves in small farms. So it brings back, you know, it's tradition to them. I had cheese that followed a recipe from the, they found it, I think, in the 14th century, Cheese made from milk from a lamb that they actually know, you know. I mean, it's like they've they've petted that lamb. Yeah, yeah. And then all over Piedmont, there are things happening during the same time. We took up a ride into the Barolo Wine District, which is really special. I don't know if you've been there. I have, actually. uh, But to me, it's hard to get my brain around where do you actually go. How would you know how to enjoy the Barolo Wine District in Piedmont? Ah, I had friends that introduced me to some places, and this happened to be white truffle season as well. So Alba is a good place to start. Alba, uh, A-L-B-A. Alba, 
Albia, yeah, that's yeah. the home of the white truffles. Yeah. And then they're just, you know, the hills are dotted with little villages. That's my recollection. It's just little villages that, like, they fell out of the sky and they sprinkled all over this beautiful uh, countryside. It's and, true. And with this passion for food in Piedmont. You know, the Italians are so into the ingredients, and they get the ingredients just right. Yeah. There's a restaurant that I love there in Osteria called Gemma's in a little town called Rodino, which I highly recommend. And I know that at one point, someone brought Gemma to San Francisco to a cooking thing, a slow food Mm -hmm. thing. And I asked her how she liked it. She says, well, it was pretty awful. This is through a translator. I said, why? And she says, well, I couldn't get the ingredients. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the frustration. If you really know Italian cooking, you just sometimes cannot get the ingredients that you want outside of Italy. Right. She has her own chickens. <laughs> she, you know, so she knows the eggs that go into her pasta. She has her own truffle hunter. So she what was your most memorable taste, your little, little morsel that you sampled at the uh, Slow Food Convention in Torino? Mm, I think it was that pear jam. Maybe it was because I knew it was so rare. But yeah. it was really quite wonderful. But, you know, that's the whole idea. Is, I mean, the fact that there was only so many pear trees and they had been going back for so long and it was from this particular spot, there's sort of that cultural, historical terroir that they get excited about. Right. And, and so I think in general people don't go to Turin. They, no, don't, they don't. It's not one of the cities on their list of must-visit in, in Italy. And it's really a beautiful city with some nice, interesting things. Um, not the least of which is there are few tourists there. Yeah, you know, everybody's going to Florence and Siena and Venice and Rome for understandable reasons, but you could right. go back to Italy and just go to the second-tier cities and find out there's nothing second-tier about them except they're less popular than the ones that have all the famous Michelangelos and Leonardos. Right, right. right. You don't see Renaissance art there, but you find a lot of other But you got Renaissance art. Italian love of life bursting yeah. all over the place. Yeah, Bologna is similar. Is it? I have yeah. not been there. Torino yeah. and Bologna are those kind of overlooked towns. Barbara, in Mill Valley, California. Thanks so much for your uh, little insight. You got me thinking about actually finding out when the next slow food conference is and, and being in Torino in October. All right. Buon appetito. Bye. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks to Aaron Harding and to our colleagues at WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut for helping us out this week. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, Begin your trip at ricksteves.com.